The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 264 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson, coming to you from Melbourne on an autumnal early weekday, and I'm joined by my dear friend, the triumphant director of the inaugural Sorrento Riders Festival, Corrie Perkin. You're with us remotely today, and I'm not surprised. It's been a big campaign, Corrie. I am a Caro. Sorry, everybody, for the dog in the background. She's she's sitting here beside me and um, normally the quietest dog in the world, but just decided to chime in. Caro, what a weekend. And I am I'm still floating on a cloud of relief, actually. (laughs) No, it's been it was a Corey. It was a, a huge success, a great triumph for you. So many highlights. We'll cover a bit of that in six quick questions, but I just want to mention, I mean, we had a, you had so many interstate guests. So many of my family and friends came from um, Sydney and one of them, my dear friend, my, my brother and sister's dear friend, Susie, ran into a woman by the name of Jill Watson. She had heard our podcast. She lives in Bordertown and she had requested rather firmly that her husband, who runs a local veterinary practice in Bordertown, drive her to Sorrento because she'd heard on the podcast about this writers' festival. I never met her, Corrie, but hello, Jill. I gather you had a ball. And there were so many stories like that, weren't there? Uh, yeah, hello, Jill. And uh, remember I said to you, was it on Sunday uh, when we were wandering around, have you noticed how many potties are at the festival? And I think that was just really lovely because all of these friendships and these connections, which had kind of started on the Wednesday night with our event at the RSL, which was last week's episode, and they just continued through the whole weekend, people becoming besties, people having coffee with one another, people talking in the corridors of the festival with people they'd never met before. It was just a really lovely, cohesive, safe happy place and um, gosh you know the Continental Hotel in Sorrento really must take a bow for and all the other venues that we accessed as well the Bowls Club and the Portsea Surf Lifesaving Club the Sorrento Museum there were just so many and we we're incredibly grateful. You yeah, know it was some um, and so many sell-out events and you know there was laughter there were tears there were big stories broken More of that in a moment, but thank you to everybody who came to the Sorrento RSL Club the day after Anzac Day. We had a fabulous event. I think Miss Jane will be doing it again, don't you? I think it was a real success there. We're definitely going to have another podcast this year, but I reckon next year, back to the RSL for the second Writers' Festival. (laughs) They couldn't have looked after us better. Just wonderful, wonderful people. A bit of uh, homework, Corrie. Deborah Isley via email writes to us from her COVID-isolated room. Greetings. Really enjoyed the latest podcast. Thank you so much. One thing that caught my attention was your discussion about cinemas, especially single screen cinemas. We are lucky in Thornbury to have the wonderful Thornbury Picture House. He writes about how it was an old petrol pump area, one screen in lockdown, um, the sign advertising what's on read back when real life does not feel like a movie, which Deborah loved. 
The film, funnily enough, Corrie, showing at the moment is Polite Society, which after the review from me and Anna from The Op Shop, you won't be going to see. Anyway, thank you, Deborah. We're still in mourning regarding the closure of the Sorrento Cinema. Just a, a huge, huge loss in my life and um, a pox on the developer who is going to end its time. Rob Harris, European correspondent for The Age. Hi, guys. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. I just love the wonderful conversation you guys had about Barry Humphreys, I guess you mean, Rob, on the podcast this week. I'd been starting to doubt my own judgment when lots of peers seemed to think differently about it. Thanks for the show. It's always a great hour and made a walk even better. So thanks, Robin. Our friend Liz Gayton from Bruny Island in Tassie feels very strongly about the Tasmanian proposal and the stadium. She feels sad and thinks it's a travesty that such a poor state with deplorable health and educational outcomes is being held to ransom by the AFL. I don't agree, but there's a lot of people who think this way, Corrie, and we're going to move on to Tasmania in a moment. There was a great opinion piece in The Age um, extrapolating on this issue earlier in 2023, and, of course, Richard Flanagan wrote a great piece in The Age on Saturday. Corrie, you would have been far too busy to have read it, but um, Liz recommends it too. It was um, very moving and and saying that um, this stadium won't house the homeless. So um, it has been a big week in footy, And Tasmania, something we've been campaigning for on this podcast since year one, Corrie, is going to be announced this week. Um, Tasmania will get the 19th AFL licence, and I think it's a triumph. I understand people like Liz and their concerns about it, but I maintain that the state and the city of Hobart will only be richer for it across the board, and the fabric of Tasmania will change. What are your views? Carol, I uh, I, wa- I wonder at what point do you think that it uh, that it turned that it went from being an idea to uh, a, a living, breathing concept that politicians uh, started to connect with, and uh, it, it's been mooted for years, as you and I know, back to when when we were kids covering football, all of these great stars of the game coming out of Tasmania, and there, as we know, they're a footy loving state. When was the turning point, do you reckon? Well, I I think you look at um, key chapters, key punctuation marks in this. I mean, there was a moment when Gillan McLaughlin, and this is a a great triumph for him and a great note to go out on, suddenly decided to understand that, as Brendan Gale famously said, and I quote it all the time in that CEO's meeting, what are we? Are we the keeper of the wallet or are we the keeper of the code? And... um, that wasn't the reason um, Gillan McLaughlin changed his mind, but he began to see that this was going to be a great legacy for the game, for the AFL administration under him, and he believed he could make it happen. And he just felt that the people of Tasmania, the numbers were going, were dropping in alarming, in alarming rates. The numbers of participation rates in Tasmania, clubs in Tasmania, ovals were being destroyed. Um, and, you know, shut down basically, scoreboard sitting there with the same scores from 10, 15 years earlier, just terribly, terribly sad state of affairs and great players weren't coming out of Tasmania anymore. So it's about development of the game and he saw that. I think the turning point, Corrie, probably came in 2019, 2018, 2019. I think that Peter Gutwin, the former Premier, who quit last year, and I was very concerned that they lost momentum when Peter Gutwin quit. I think he should be the president of the new club. He was a, he's a former footballer, 
who made it happen in terms of galvanising the state and having a, a seat at the table with the AFL. And a man by the name of James Henderson, a Tasmanian by birth who lives in Melbourne. Actually, um, you might see him down at Sorrento occasionally too, Corrie. He's, um, he's an entrepreneur. He's a player agent, among many other things. He has managed so many great sportsmen and coaches, including Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan and Ricky Ponting and Tim Payne, um, Jamie Carr, the jockey, a lot of people who've been in controversy, funnily enough. He put together a working party, that, um, including Brett Godfrey, um, an airline chief, really, former Virgin boss living in Brisbane. And their pressure group puts so much pressure on the AFL. They've been shut out a bit recently, I sort of gather. Nick Revolt came on board with them. The work they did and their feasibility study, there have been so many feasibility studies, the last by Colin Carter, which I felt was a bit negative and kept um, merging or relocation as an option. But in the end, they all together, all the sums of all those parts put together this equation, which, you know, we're now talking about how they're going to get players, where the team's going to be based, how many games they're going to play in Launceston. And over 400, I think in total about $450,000 or $400 million, I should say, of federal government money is going to rebuild or build a stadium. And I know Liz isn't happy, but they're going to build a stadium probably on the Macquarie Point site and they're going to upgrade York Park in Launceston where Hawthorne currently play their home games. This will, I believe, change the face of the state and I think it will it will lift employment numbers. It will fix the economy to a degree. And um, I just think it's going to be a wonderful story and I hope we're both at the first game, Corrie. Well, I'd, always a trip to Tassie is, uh, is a good trip. Uh, I gather there's been a bit of uh, political fallout from this, Caro. The Greens, the Tasmanian Greens, deciding to withdraw their tripartisan support for the bid. Correct. Um, Correct. On, on the grounds that they didn't think Tasmania needed it, nor could Tasmania afford it, which I gather, um, I can't wait to read that Martin Flanagan. Did you say Martin Flanagan? Or no, Richard Flanagan. Richard, Richard, the Booker Prize winning brother of Martin. Yes. Yep. Both superb writers too. What a family gene pool! But uh, but I gather he's probably um, he's probably arguing a similar um, kind of conversation. I don't know, but I wondered also in terms of the politics, Cara, what the rest of the AFL commissioners thought about this decision. Were all clubs on board? Well, and the other thing point we should make is that state Labor, despite the fact that Anthony Albanese went there on Saturday after his unfortunate decision to attend Carl Sanderland's wedding earlier, he went there and made this announcement. State Labor have their reservations as well. So that tripartite agreement you talked about is no longer as very much tripartite. The clubs have been, there have been recalcitrant, recalcitrant clubs um, led by Collingwood, and Sydney, Port Adelaide had their reservations and um, the outgoing Gold Coast chairman, Tony Cochran, was anti-Tasmania too. But they all, though all those clubs, um, and as we time code this episode, the presidents are meeting, they will all vote for Tasmania now. And the reason they've come around is because of the business model that Gillan McLaughlin with Anthony Albanese and state government money too, and there'll be private funding has put together. So yes, there was a lot of club doubt and you know, it's, you know what clubs are like, not in my backyard. I mean, they're just worried about players they're going to lose. They're still concerned about 
the number of players they will lose. I think there'll be big signing on bonuses to get players to move to Tasmania and base themselves in Tasmania. There'll be um, the new club will be given high draft picks, which they will be forced to trade to get talent into the club. So the clubs who trade their good players will obviously get high draft picks in return. This is not going to be like GWS, Corrie, who was sort of, and I know I've used this term about your football club in the past and was possibly wrong, an asterisk. They don't want a team to be building from the bottom up. They want this team to be competitive from day one. And so the clubs have come on board. It's going to be cautious. The business model will take the next few years to fully establish. And whether it's 27 or 28, there will be a licence granted and there will be an extra club in the AFL, which I think is just so exciting. And we will truly, the AFL, be a national league. So we're we calling them the Tasmanian Devils. What, what do we know about the branding? think so. Uh, that seems to be the title that most people like. Uh, will the jumper have that sort of map of Tasmania on it, like the state team war and the VFL, the team that recently played in the VFL war? Um, will the colour be green? I'm not sure. I mean, there was a big marketing campaign that came up with the Jack Jumpers. You know, that's the um, Tasmanian basketball team. And everyone sort of turned their noses up a bit at the Jack Jumpers, but they've become huge already. No, I think I like the Tassie Devils, a bit close to the Demons, the Melbourne name. But, you know, the Tassie Devils is certainly Tasmanian. I'd love to see uh, a green, uh, some sort of green Guernsey too. I think that would be a lovely nod to the to the state's beauty, natural beauty. And, of course, for many years, uh, Tasmania has been a leader in environmental issues. So I'd love to see green on a Guernsey. And there's never been, we don't have a green Guernsey. So it's a point of difference as well. The theme song is going to be interesting. I mean, the whole, watching a team build from the ground up is fascinating. I mean, I've covered the creation of the Gold Coast Suns and I watched Fremantle come in, Port Adelaide, of course, already an established club. Adelaide, you know, New South the South Melbourne Football Club to Sydney, clearly the most successful of all the moves and the creation of the Brisbane Lions, which has been an extraordinary um, success for the AFL. But this is going to be great because when you build a club in a in a state that is basically a football state, it, it's just such a free kick. And yes, there's not the population, there's not the money, there's not the TV ratings. And the fact that Gillan McLaughlin has been able to make this happen is a huge feather in his cap. And well, Gil- go on, sorry. And he's, moving, and he's moving on, Caro, and Andrew Dillon is now going to have uh, take on board the CEO's job and nurse this project through. I don't suppose we know Andrew Dillon's views on Tasmania. I guess he's been all for it following his boss's advocacy. Oh, he's um, very much a supporter of Tasmania and made it quite clear in one of his first interviews yesterday that unlike the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he thinks the new stadium should have a roof. He's been very definitive on that. He's been part of the negotiations, the list management rules of putting this team together, and he's a huge fan. And it's interesting, Corey, um, that the day after Andrew Dillon was announced as the CEO-elect for the AFL, that Qantas has announced that Alan Joyce is stepping down, so Richard Goida's other company that he chairs. He's been busy, Richard Goida. Well, not busy enough. He's taken far too long to make a call on the AFL CEO. So two big changes. Could Gillan McLaughlin become the next CEO of Qantas, Corrie? Oh, Lordy, is that seriously being mooted about? I can't believe it. But, yes, I suppose... uh, 
I suppose Richard's had a hotline to executive search, search companies around the country, really. But look, I, you know, I, I, I don't know Andrew Dillon. Um, I was working for the AFL briefly in the late 90s before he arrived. I gather he was a pretty handy player for the old Zabs. So he's got football in his DNA. Six premierships, Corey. Six premierships. I didn't know that. Well, that's that's no slouch. That's a pretty great achievement. And um, and I know that uh, over the time you've spoken highly of him, but also you had you were a strong supporter, as were many, for um, Brendan Gale, the CEO of Richmond. And then more recently, Kylie Watson Wheeler came into the mix, which would have been an incredibly bold move to put a woman in charge of the AFL perfectly sensible, you know, great, great credentials, would have done a terrific job. But are you happy and comfortable with this uh, this this appointment? I'm, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Dillon. He, I, I thought Brendan Gale deserved far more consideration and I, I would have been really happy if Brendan Gale had got the job, but he didn't get the job. And it's interesting that Andrew Dillon has spoken already to Brendan Gale. They're good friends. And, you know, the word is that he is going to work incredibly hard with people externally to try and convince Brendan Gale to come and work for him and run football in an elevated role at the AFL. So whether that happens, who knows if Brendan Gale would be prepared to do that. Corrie, Andrew Dillon is a fascinating story. Um, you would remember his father, John, Jack Dillon, and mum, Alison. Jack Dillon was a, um, was a famous um, De La Salle boy, um, VRC, big racing man, champion of amateur footy um, and a great Richmond supporter. That's how I met him with my father. But Andrew Dillon's aunt was Geraldine Dillon. And you would remember her as the pioneer, really, of cooking shows in Australia. I mean, (laughs) you know, whenever I think of Geraldine, it's so funny you say that because whenever I think of Geraldine Dillon, there's a million memories that come to my mind. The first one is that she was tall, elegant, with um, a a kind of a beehive-ish type hairdo. Correct. I just (laughs) I remember as a, as a younger child, um, if you if it was school holidays and you weren't going away anywhere, which usually was the case in the 70s, no one went anywhere, uh, or, or if you were sick at home from school. I loved watching Vi Greenhalf and Geraldine Dillon rolling the morning the morning television into Days of Our Lives, which was just fantastic. But Geraldine Dillon, in a funny, bizarre, silly sort of way, inspired me to cook. So my curiosity for cooking, because my mother wasn't a great cook, she didn't like it very much. It, my grandparents, my grandparents ran bakeries in the in the Mallee and the Wimmera uh, years earlier, and they were in Melbourne, and they would often cook with me basic things like shortbreads and hot cross buns. But Geraldine Dillon really really fascinated, as did Robert Carrier on the ABC, I might add. But Geraldine Dillon was just such a terrific person. It's such a wonderful, warm woman. I had no idea they were related. That is the best trivia question. Well, she uh, is the woman who pioneered salads in Australia. I mean, she came home from America where she was a big name too briefly and taught Australians to serve salad with their main course, not as an entree. 
and she went. You know, she went to the Cordon Bleu School in London, and when she came, you know, she first had a show in TV in 1960. But that successful show that ran in conjunction on Channel Nine with the Woman's Weekly ran for five or six years. And his other Andrew Dillon's other uncle. He's got two other uncles. One of them is Brendan Dillon, sort of known as the Racing Priest. He blesses the um, races every spring carnival and the jockeys. <laughs> I've interviewed him once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other one was is Kevin Dillon, and he's a he was a strong, strong opponent, and well, a strong voice against sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, and one who really put a lot of pressure on George Pell to come back and um, face those um, sexual assault charges. So it's fascinating family, and of course, his beautiful wife Amanda, um, Andrew's wife, is Paul Sheehan's daughter the former Test cricketer, and he's got three gorgeous girls who we saw when the announcement was made. He is going to be different to Gillan McLaughlin, although they are close friends who have worked together for two decades. He's um, incredibly calm, incredibly fair, incredibly tough, with a bit of a thick skin and not sensitive. He's not going to talk about anything if people criticise him, and he's really intelligent. So, um, yeah. and I mean, Gillan McLaughlin, you know, clearly is very intelligent and probably probably more charismatic, I guess, when he speaks, etc. But you saw Andrew Dillon give his first interviews, and it was like, gee, you're the boss now. It's it's even though Gillan may hang around until early October at the commission's request, Andrew's going to put his team together, and it sounds like he will really have some authority there. Well, that's exciting, and as the father of girls, I I always love to hear that a man with that kind of background and and those sorts of conversations at home happening is leading a primarily predominantly male workforce i always feel very comfortable with that scenario and because the it, it, it's the women at home who so often can influence the men who go out there and speak on behalf of you know such vast communities of people and I wonder whether any of the girls play football. I don't know that, but um, yeah, he coach, well, he coaches one of them, or he did coach one of them. I know one's one um, is a rower, and certainly he has coached under thirteen footy. So, um, and I, the only other thing I'll say, Corey, is that the mood of the staff at AFL headquarters when the announcement was made was one of elation. He um, oh, that's is an incredibly incredibly popular executive there. So. Let's just hope um, this is another great era for the AFL. You have to say that Gillan McLaughlin's done a brilliant job and, you know, with some reservations, but overall a big, big tick for um, Gillan McLaughlin and now for Andrew Dillon. And 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 Gillan will always be known, and you, you and I will talk about his legacy at length when the time comes when we say farewell, but um, his, his greatest achievement, I think, was actually seeing the game through COVID and multiple lockdowns when everybody thought that every club was going to go bankrupt and how on earth was the code going to cope. In fact, uh, I think Gillan McLaughlin, that was one of his great achievements to nurse them through. Caro, before we go on to the cocktail cabinet, I understand that uh, the downside of me not being there today, and there are many downsides because I always love seeing you and Miss Jane, but Janie has brought in from her country estate some mushrooms and I am missing out on the mushrooms more fool you, Corrie, but I know you have a very good excuse. You haven't been all that well and I don't blame you. Miss Jane, where did you find them? 
uh, foraged near Creswick um, in, you know, the, the Goldfields region. They are pine mushrooms, though, Corey. I don't want anyone to think you can just go out and pick mushrooms. I've done the course. I know my identification. Please just don't go and pick anything that looks like a field mushroom because they're probably going to make you sicker than <laughs> you realise. So, so these are the beautiful orangey, yellowy ones. Um, Clem had a big haul a few years ago. What would you do with them, Jane? So all I do is sauté them in butter, good salted butter, and then thyme. Or the other day I actually made um, crispy fried sage leaves or like a burnt sage butter and did that over the top. But, you know, just sauté them, maybe garlic, maybe onion, whatever you've got, and then just a tiny bit of cream and a dash of wine just to finish it off. The same as you would a normal mushroom, but they're saffron milk caps, a big delicacy at the moment in uh, most parts of the country where it's cool enough for fungi. So, Carol, do you remember a few years ago the kids gave me as a mother Mother's Day present a mushroom foraging trip? I do, Corrie, and, and I've I've eaten some um, fruits of that labour. The way you serve mushrooms as a bar snack is a sight to behold. Well, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm a bit miffed that I'm not receiving mushrooms. Although you could grab a bag and bring it down to the beach for me so I can enjoy. But, um, Jane, we went foraging in those uh, forests around um, Creswick and we had all the proper uh, lessons, really. This one is not a mushroom to eat. This one is and all that kind of thing. And then if you recall, Caro, the chap who took us on the tour, we then had uh, a barbecue lunch. We just made it in a kind of a pit in the ground and he cut up and served these mushrooms and the recipe, which which was on the show notes very early on in our podcast life back in 2017, but he did it uh, mushrooms um, with three cheeses, oh. and it was out of this world. Talk about rich! <laughs> but it was great. I oh. love I love um, mushroom soup. Oh yes, but I don't know if these are conducive no, to soup. Maybe not quite. Um, and if you notice, there's still a price tag. I've actually stolen the basket from Tin Can Collective. It's my new man Tim's uh, vintage store in Creswick. So if you are in town and you're foraging, go buy a basket from Tim. That's Gee, a plug, Carrie. There's a lot of news <laughs> in that sentence. <laughs> well, Corrie, on a big news day, I think we move now with great happiness to the cocktail cabinet where Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store is going to join us. And, Miles, you've got a lot of fabulous recommendations, as always, but we're on Southern Rhone wines this week, which is fascinating. Yeah, I thought good. Oh. Good, you know those Rhone wines are that that. So we have GSMs here in Australia. That's what we sort of, you know, that's what we've sort of copied, I guess, from the French. But these lovely, like Medit, you know, it's close to the Mediterranean, so lovely, warm, soft, plush, sort of fruited, lovely red, spicy sort of things going on. There's some very serious sort of versions as well, obviously. But the Rhone's huge. I think it's the second biggest region outside of Bordeaux as far as wine production and size. So, yeah, produces a lot of styles of wines, cheap to, to very premium and expensive. But, um, yeah, so I thought a couple of those. And they're the perfect sort of like winter wine or it feels like winter, autumn wine. <laughs> well, pick, pick your poison. I, I think autumnal, um, particularly as we're sitting here with the most extraordinary basket of mushrooms. Oh, my gosh. Miss Jane has foraged. So tell us about which one you're going to recommend today. Yeah, so I've I got a couple. I thought I'd do a little, a little cheapy, a little great value sort of entry level and something a little more serious. So the first one is Delas, Cote de Rhone, and it's called the Saint Esprit. 
Um, and Delas is a really large their domain, so they own a bunch of vineyards. They also buy fruit as well, so they're they're quite large. And this Esprit, they make a lot of, um, but it's always every year, every time we have it, we're always kind of shocked at how how good they seem to nail it. It's it's pretty incredible, and they make quite a lot. But it's always fantastic value, and it's in that really sort of like red fruited raspberry and spice and lovely sort of fleshy and soft. They don't use any oak on it. It's all it's all about that sort of fresh crunchy sort of fruit um, and it's $25 a bottle so really sort of great value and just you know that's sort of what I call you know drink don't think kind of wine. Wonderful is it plentiful mm. at the moment at Prince Wine Store? It is plentiful we have, we it, stacked, into we have it stacked down the front ready to go <laughs> yeah it, it, it often ends up in that front section which is our value section because it's, it's every time we have it we're just like oh wow this is just such good good value. Okay it's so really entry level to top shelf. Yeah, so not quite top shelf, but this is from a producer called Font de Corte Dune. Um, and Font de Corte Dune, uh, the, 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 the gent who runs it now, his father used to sort of have it, used to sell a lot of the, the grapes and stuff. And then he's a fireman and he moved back to run the property eventually with his wife. Um, and they've turned out to be quite surprised talents in, in, in the winery. And they own a Chateauneuf-de-Pape property, which is you know the, one of the most famous villages of, of the Rhone. But this is their Cote de Rhone villages, and it's actually a, a, a vineyard that's just next to their Chateauneuf-de-Pape property. Um, and the villages sort of designation, just, just as a quick little sort of aside, it's sort of a more premium selection of normal Cote de Rhone, and it has to come from one or a multitude of designated villages that are considered more premium than the general Cote de Rhone appellation. And so this one actually so comes from... So it's not only regions, it's villages. Yeah. To... So this one actually comes basically from what I understand is Chateauneuf-de-Pap and is also from a single vineyard. So you're kind of getting a bit of a double whamming there. And it's $39, but it's a more it's a more serious wine. There's definitely a lot more sort of depth. It's a little more of that mix of like red and sort of black sort of forest fruit. Again, no oak, so lovely sort of freshness to the fruit, but it has a bit more body and weight, and it's a little more it's a little more serious in in sort of style, a little bit more of that kind of like you know roasted spice and kind of darker fruit. It's very very good. Have you been to Chateau Neuf de Pape? I have I have been to Chateau Neuf de Pape. Yeah, I've been to Avignon, and it's a really lovely part of the world. Avignon's one of my Avignon's favorite favorite towns. Gorgeous. Yep. Absolutely gorgeous. Describe describe the village where this wine comes from. Well, yeah. So, so Chateauneuf's, I'm not sure how far it is from Avignon, but if you've ever been there, Chateauneuf is famous for these soils that have these sort of galettes, these big rocks in them. And then it also has these soils that are more sort of sandy soils. And this comes from the more sandy soil. So they get this sort of pretty elegance. But if you've been there, there's kind of, there's a sort of ruggedness to that sort of region. And, you know, it's also famous for wine, but it's also famous for obviously like rosemary and, um, uh, it, like these kind of wild herbs, what they call garigue there. So it has this kind lots of... Lots of lavender too. Yeah, and lavender, which they obviously make lots of great um, cosmetics and things from there as well. We stayed, L- we stayed near... Lockitan is from, from based in Lockitan there. Lockitan it is. Lockitan, and we sorry. stayed at a um, cherry orchard near there. Yeah. The cherries as well. Thoughts, Corrie, on these two reds? Um, well, I think that sounds really lovely. I remember being in that region a few years ago, having a couple of nights there and doing a bit of a Le Grand Bouffe kind of road trip, really, complete indulgence on food and wine down to Lyon. And what I do remember, Caro and Miles, was one of the sommeliers at the restaurant explaining 
the history of this area because, of course, it goes back to the Romans and they discovered and set up the first wineries there. And it's just quite incredible to think that this region has been so prolific and so highly regarded for hundreds of years. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of that sort of wine history, you know, tied through the ages, it's it's pretty incredible when you look back. And I know like in places like that and in Germany as well, you know, they have records that go back so far, like, you know, what the weather was on a certain day. At a, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's very cool. There we have it, two beautiful sounding reds from the Southern Rhone region. Delas, Saint Esprit, $25 yep. with um, a further 10% discount. 10% off with your ME. Less discount. Yep. Well done, Miles. And um, the Shadow Nerf de Pap Font de Font de Corte Dune. Beautiful. Yeah, thirty nine dollars, cool. but yep. a bit of a discount there for a good red. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, perfect. Perfect with these uh, mushrooms, I'd say. Miles, thank you very much. And thank you. just remember that Prince Wine Store is a fabulous sponsor of this show. You can use the promo code M E S for your ten percent listener discount at checkout online, or go to this. Wonderful shop in Bank Street, South Melbourne. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Corrie, thanks to Red Energy, who have been awarded Australia's most trusted energy providers by CanStar three times. It is time for BSF, and I'm going to kick us off with The Rose Boys, a wonderful book about football and one that I was reminded of at the Writers' Festival because um, Peter Rose, the poet, the publisher, the son of the great Bob Rose, uh, was on a panel with me and and had a fair bit to do with the Writers' Festival. And um, he gave me a signed copy of his book that I'd read years earlier at my father's house. Andrew Dimitriou, um, the former AFL boss, has described this as his best ever footy book. It is the story of the Rose boys, um, Peter Rose who is a very, very different prospect to his brother, Robert Jr., who, of course, was tragically um, injured and his career was cut short um, thanks to a car accident. He um, became a, a quadriplegic. He died far too young. And the story of Robert and Elsie Rose, um, one of the more fascinating footy couples. Um, it doesn't pull any punches, this book. Um, the gloves are off in many different ways. And Peter, as we know, was a very, very different prospect to his brother. He was not a sporting hero. He was became very successful in his own right. And I know, you know, in, in the end, I think there was reconciliation from the family on many, many levels. But I recommend this book, The Rose Boys. I know um, Chris Redfern and Avenue Bookstore were selling it at the Writers' Festival, the, the, the little bookshop they set up. Big bookshop, really. They set up with great success at the Conti Hotel in Sorrento. But I don't know if you've ever read it, but we talked about, you know, on the panel, one of the panels we did about our favourite sports books, and this one came up. It is a very, very good book. Look, I agree, Carol. I love the Rose Boys. And, in fact, years ago at the bookshop, Peter joined uh, a session to, and, and discussed it at length. And that discussion prompted me to actually go back and really, really chew over lots of pieces of it. It's a wonderful family story. It's a story of love and it's a story of how footy can be such a positive in so many people's lives. And as you said, Peter is a poet of great repute and the editor of the Australian Book Review, so he's no slouch when it comes to writing. And um, that was a great, great footy panel you had the other night. And I just thought Eddie was just about to explode when I said that Bob Rose had been the coach of, you know, um, the Western Bulldogs. Bulldogs. I know, I know. 
<laughs> I thought he was going to have an apoplectic fit, but I kind of half did it because I just wanted to really annoy Eddie, get under his skin. But um, it was a great session. Well done to all of you. And um, and uh, wasn't it nice to have footy at a writers' festival? Well, it was. There was a lot going on at that writers' festival, and there was another. Um which I never got to see because I was busy doing another um, another panel, but um, the one on sports journalism and whether it's a dying art that you, in fact, had a fair bit. I think you moderated that one, didn't you? Yeah, it was great. With Andrew Rule and Don Watson, it was a really lovely session, yeah. Well, I would just say again that the Rose Boys, and yes, it's um, inspirational, but it's also a very, very sad story in many ways. I mean, it's a tragic story in many ways. And Peter, as I say, doesn't gild the lily about what life was like for Elsie at times and about the breakup of his brother's marriage and about his own sexuality. Look, it's just, it's a great book. It's a really, really good book. It came out, I reckon, around the turn of the century, around 2000. Now, Corrie, screen, we've both been far too busy to actually go and see anything, although my sister tells me we have to watch The Diplomat, um, a streamer. I I think it's on Netflix. She absolutely raves about it. I know it's got Rufus Sewell in it and it looks fab. Um, but we're going to talk about telling Australian stories in film because that's something we um, talked about, well, I talked about on another panel at the Writers' Festival. Look, Carol, I, I was inspired by your uh, session with Fred Skepsy and uh, Ian Darling, the, the uh, very highly regarded and talented documentary maker and Hanny Rayson took the session and that was great too because of course she has written plays that have become the film Hotel Sorrento and and she's also worked on Sea Change and a number of, of other television things. I found it a really interesting session and I'm glad we actually have an opportunity today to talk about it because uh, I, I did a lot of thinking in while putting this festival together, Caro, about the incredible, um, the many ways and the incredible ways in which film and TV have contributed to our national psyche, our sense of ourselves, but also very famous passages, speeches in films where words have come to life in, in, a, in, a, in a cinematic way. And then you mentioned, of course, you kicked off the session the other day by talking about how many great Australian books have become films. And I'd kind of forgotten that too. That was such an interesting point that you made. Well, you know, Ian Darling, who was um, is a wonderful filmmaker, and we talked, we talked a lot about his Adam Goods film, The Final Quarter, but he's made so many great films, including one of my favourites, um, documentary about Paul Kelly, the musician Paul Kelly, um, but his view was that until we really understand ourselves, he, he's not sure we can really make films about ourselves. And I, I suppose I argued that, you know, so much of our great literature has become great film. And and then I think Fred Skepsy mentioned later on in the conversation um, The Dry. And Jane Harper, of course, was a speaker at the Writers' Festival. But and that's a more recent novel that became a, a really successful, pretty successful Australian film with a great cast. No one brought in from overseas. And and I think we're, we're seeing that again and again and again. I mean, Patrick White's stories. Um, we didn't get to talk about Tim Winton at all, but, I mean, obviously the, the film Breath was a, a fabulous film 
directed and starring Simon Baker. But um, Fred himself made uh, That Eye of the Sky, which is one of Tim's books as well. And, and, you know, I'm sure, and talking, you know, in my interview with Sarah Winman, she spoke about Tim Winton being a great inspiration for her and, and Cloud Street, and that, of course, became a miniseries on television. There are so many so, and so much more that we can do, but I'm pretty positive about it, and I think although Fred Skepsy, who's a brilliant filmmaker, is finding it harder and harder to get projects up these days for a variety of reasons, I think he was pretty positive about the future as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I thought he was he was positive. Gosh, it was great to have Fred there. And another session uh, on Sunday afternoon was he and Tom Keneally discussing The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which, of course, was Tom's great novel of 50 years ago, 1973. So 45 years ago, Fred Skepsy made his really, really kind of seminal moment film, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And, boy, did that really bring home to many Australians who weren't familiar with black, white, Australian and the trauma of First Nations people. That was a real eye-opener, that film. But, Caro, you think about so many of these great films that we've created and whether they've been hailed internationally at the box office or not, they've been firm favourites amongst Australians and they've really given us a sense of who we are, like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. 1994, that movie was made. Guy Pearce, Hugo Weaving, Bill Hunter, like really great cast. And... I still chortle at the humour there. It still really gets to me, that film. It still resonates. It's something that my kids started watching around that time when it was first released. In fact, I think I might have even taken the older older couple to the movies to see it. But um, what a great what a great film that was. How joyful. And what about Babe in 1995? James Cromwell, he was a US import, of course, played the farmer. Magda Zabanski was his wife. She was brilliant. And then all the famous voices who played the animals, including Hugo Weaving again. Marian, Miriam Margulies was the female um, border collie yeah. <laughs> um, fly. Um, but, you know, it was just a really wonderful film as well, just joyful and celebratory and just that, that under, underneath it all was a kind of an Australian sense of humour. Well, one of the one of the – you mentioned Priscilla and that was – unlike the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which was historic and important and a major punctuation mark in our cinema history. It was not successful, though. It lost money at the box office at the time. It stands up now as a work of art, very much so. But, you know, talking about successful films, Priscilla was hugely successful. And around that time, Muriel's Wedding came out too. And, you know, both those films featured heavily the work of ABBA. And the point about Australia is, you know, we put ABBA on the map. We loved ABBA. You know, as a nation, you know, we all watched Countdown and, you know, ABBA came here, you know, dozens of times and we were one of the countries who first embraced them. Now, isn't that part of our identity? You know, funny, quirky, cultural things like that. And that, that the ABBA was one reason both those films, I reckon, did so well. And, of course, Priscilla had Terence Stamp, didn't it? So that also um, brought in an import, I suppose, and Fred Skepsy wrote really or spoke really interestingly about that, about how you often needed to do that to get a film off the ground. Well, one of my favourites too, which had no stars at all and was considered uh, when it first came out, it got a couple of rough reviews, including one from Jim Shembury in The Age at the time in 1997 was The Castle. And as you know, one of the volunteers at our festival across the four days uh, was Michael Hirsch, a mate of mine who has is lives down here with um with his wife Celia, 
and Michael volunteered and Michael is the uh, was the producer of the castle he's part of the working dog team and he was telling me the other day about the castle when uh, when it first came out they'd all put everything on the line to produce it and tell this story of the Kerrigan family whose house was um, in the um, flight path of the Melbourne airport and were they going to lose their home and what did it, what did home actually mean do you remember Bud Tingle was in it Cara he was brilliant but Michael was saying that um, he saw Jim Shembury a year or so later when it had been in like the top box office success for, I don't know, 16 weeks or 25 weeks or whatever it was. And he saw Jim at the airport and uh, he, he knew that Jim had seen him, but he didn't want to say, he, he, but Jim was, I think, probably trying to look the other way. And Michael came up and said, well, you really mucked up that one, Jim. <laughs> I remember Tyriel Mora, it's the vibe, it's Marbo. I mean, so many lines in that film. How did you, what did you, how did you do it, doll? How do you do it? I mean, there were so many great lines. What is it yeah, about, what I is just, it about wogs and cash? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and how often do we say, how's the serenity? It just became part of our our, our whole, um, but and one film I just wanted to quickly mention because it, it received, it's often overlooked, I think, and I'm not sure whether, how many Australians were involved in the production of this. So perhaps it's considered an international film, I don't know. But it was it received six Oscar nominations and that was in 2016, the film Lion. Do you remember it was yep. based on that? Nicole Kidman. Yep. Yeah, and the, and, tr- and the true story of uh, Saru, five-year-old Saru, who um, finds himself, uh, he wakes up in a freight train because he and his brother are stealing coal and um, he falls asleep in the freight train and the freight train is taking him hundreds of miles from home. And because he's lower caste and has no sense of the map of India or where he's going, he ends up in Calcutta hundreds of miles from home and eventually um, is considered an orphan and is adopted by an Australian family. And the parents, of course, played by Nicole Kidman and David Wenham. Well, I love that film and I have cried. I've watched it now probably three, maybe four times. I cry every time. I think it's a stunningly beautiful of course a lot of it is shot in India but also the Australian scenes uh and I'll give Nicole Kidman one thing Caro she she did a really good role as a as a compassionate um, mother of an adopted child it was a it was a great film did you see it yeah I loved it I absolutely loved it um David Wenham too and the the search the search for his roots and um the final scenes are some of the most moving I've ever seen. Absolutely beautiful. Filmed in India and, of course, um, also set in Tasmania. An absolutely wonderful film. And just go and see The Paperboy, Corrie, one of the great acting performances of the last 20 years by Nicole Kidman. How she never got nominated for an Oscar, I do not know. Anyway, let's quickly move on to food. And, Corrie, you won't be surprised to hear my recipe for this week. It's very boring, it's very simple, and it's very timely. Coronation chicken. (laughs) I might make the quiche, but everybody's seen that recipe. It's been put up online. This is an oldie but a goodie. My mum has been making it for years. It never really occurred to me until I was growing up that the reason we all know about it is because it was made first, served first, and put up by, um, I think it was Constance Spry, yeah, who ran the Cordon Bleu Cookery School. We've already spoken about that today. Yeah, probably around the early days of Geraldine Dillon. She made this recipe and she put this recipe up for the Queen's coronation back in 1953. But this was an original, this is from the original recipe and it's been put up by the BBC this week. Six tablespoons of Hellman's Real Mayonnaise, 
two to three teaspoons of mild curry powder to taste. And when I say curry powder, nothing fancy, curry, just yeah. the old Keens curry old powder. Keynes. Half a teaspoon ground cinnamon, two tablespoons mango chutney, one to three tablespoons sultanas or to taste, and 500 grams shredded cooked chicken. Not just the breast, but the whole chicken. You mix everything together, bar the chicken, and then you add the then you add the chicken, stir to coat. If you want, stir in a couple of tablespoons of water to loosen if needed, and some black pepper. Serve as desired. Goes well with jacket potatoes, and I'd throw in a green salad. There you go, Corrie. And if you're going to attempt the quiche, good luck to you. Um, are we having a little bit of a gathering on Saturday night for the King's coronation, Caro? You know, well, you know we are, and you're invited. <laughs> I can't wait. Cannot wait. That, I'm looking forward to that. That is BSF for Red Energy, a different version of um, Red Energy, um, BSF, I should say, for this week. Thanks again. Um, you're powered by Snowy Hydro. You're a leader in renewable energy. And the number to call Red Energy is 131806. Now, Corrie, very little to be grumpy about this week, um, because it's been a wonderful week and, you know, I, I can't put into words enough what a phenomenal effort you achieved last weekend. And I know it was a team effort and you had an unbelievable team and part of your shtick is that you got that team to work for you so loyally and faithfully for so long. But despite how wonderful the Riders' Festival was, we woke up on Monday to the press conference where in... Richard Goiter, the chairman of the AFL, sitting alongside Andrew Dillon, announced that Andrew Dillon was the CEO-elect. And among a pretty poor performance by the AFL chairman was um, the fact that he tried to justify the fact that the commission has had two vacancies for two more than two years by saying, you used to bag me for saying the commission was too big. Well, that never happened. He finally conceded they would put someone with football background onto the commission. He didn't explain why it's taken more than two years. And he then said that one of the reasons why Gillan McLaughlin has stayed on for so long was that in September, the Hawthorne thing lobbed. The Hawthorne mm. thing lobbed. Now... Disgraceful. What? How disgraceful it, to diminish it by saying it like that? The Hawthorne thing involved some heinous accusations by former players at the Hawthorne Football Club, Indigenous players, about the treatment they had received and their families had received. The accusations are vehemently denied by some of the biggest names in footy. Nonetheless, whoever is telling the truth or whether there's something in the middle or who knows, this is not a thing and it didn't lob. It was. It might have been badly handled, it might have been badly publicised and badly released and there's many things about this story that are just dreadful, but it wasn't a thing and it didn't lob. Anyway, that's my grumpy for this week. And now again for Red Energy, we're going to launch into six quick questions. Do you want to kick us off? Um, Caro, I will kick you off. Uh, my question to you, and these are all relate. All these questions are actually related to our recent Writers' Festival this past weekend. Which historically, historical literary fact are you embarrassed not to have known? And I gather this must have come up over the weekend. Well, it, it, it's all about the weekend and all the things I learnt, but I had no idea, nor did many of the people sitting around me, that Miles Franklin, Stella Franklin, Miles Stella Franklin, had um, become had been an activist in Chicago at the time of the garment workers' strike and had in fact led 
that movement to such a degree? I mean, we, we learnt this at what it's an opera, I suppose. It's been put together by a wonderful local singer and musician, Monique Dimitina, and they performed the sort of, I suppose, something that is we will remember as the origins of what is about to become an opera by the name of Stella, dedicated to the life, the fascinating life of Miles Franklin. It was at the um, Portsea Lord Mayor's camp. It was a wonderful, wonderful show. Alma Ziggia was one of the performers. She was amazing, as was Rebecca Bernard and a young band of Year 9 women called The Receivers. But I had no idea that she was a union activist in Chicago, nor, in fact, did I know much about her life in London. No, look, it was really great. As Monique said, I've written the songs. I just haven't written the libretto yet. So she took us through what could only really be described as as a, a very sophisticated workshop. But we were privileged enough to hear nine or ten songs with Monique telling us the story of Stella Maria Sarah Miles Franklin, who died in 1954. And she was, uh, after My Brilliant Career, of course she had to have My Brilliant Career published as Miles Franklin because otherwise they wouldn't have accepted a manuscript from a woman. And um, after Australia, of course, Australian women were the first in the world to receive the vote, along with New Zealand, She then took herself off to America where she lobbied hard on behalf of American women to overturn, overturn, uh, you know, their their constitution's um, barring of women from being able to vote. And she worked hard on that cause for a few years and then ended up just before World War I going to England where she did the same thing as, as an activist. So she was a remarkable person, Caro. And when she died, she left this little amount of money that she had in her savings to the perpetual trustees to create a literary award. And of course, as we know, the rest is history. Yeah, it's a great story. I look forward to that becoming a a real piece and going to see it. What was your funniest moment at the festival? There were about 10. One was in particular watching uh, three of our friends and festival goers at the Literary Trivia Night dancing, doing their best Peter Garrett impersonations. So that was pretty hilarious. And when, when Ian Darling put a white napkin on his head and I said, why the napkin? He said, that's to indicate the bald head of Peter Garrett. I thought that was hilarious. But the funniest thing I think was when um, my daughter Francesca was chatting to Jane Caro, a friend of the pod, and saying to Jane, oh, Jane, my God, I love your work and our book club just did your wonderful book. Congratulations on The Daughter. And Jane said, yeah, thank you, Francesca. It's actually called The Mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we had a few moments like that. That was, um, yeah, I I think I got one of Fred Skepsi's films wrong too, but there we are. (laughs) Um, Which disappointing fact did you pick up after your session with Fred Skepsi? I don't know what you mean, disappointing fact, Caro. Well, afterwards we were chatting and I told him that two of his favourite films of mine were Last Orders, which is based on the Graham Swift novel, you know, another example of great British words put into film, a great film with a great cast, Michael Caine, etc. And the other one, of course, was The Six Degrees of Separation, a brilliant film starring a very young Will Smith in an unusual role, Donald Sutherland, incredible cast. Was was, um, Stocking Channard in that? Stockard Channing. (laughs) Stockard Channing. Sorry, yes. I just said that completely on the wrong way. Stockard Channing. She was a star, and I said they were. They were. I would have to say they're two of my favourite films ever. And he said, um, "I said, how did they do? You know, at the box office." He said, "Terribly, terribly. Their marketing was stuffed. One of them, MGM, was undergoing a, a change of management. They were promoted poorly, 
and um, marketing budgets were put in at the wrong time. The timing was dreadful. And as he said to me, he said, you know, I used to work in advertising. That's where I started. I won awards in advertising. You think they listened to me? They didn't. And, you know, I mean, they're brilliant films and they're there for all to see, but what a pity they didn't pick up bigger audiences. Anyway, I was disappointed by that. What was your most emotional moment? Well, obviously, farewelling the festival after the Voice to Parliament session with Marcia Langton, a very emotional Kerry O'Brien, extremely emotional, uh, Thomas Mayo and Julianne Schultz and Patricia Carvelis. Uh, there's no beating that, I guess. But I did What about, sorry to digress, but what about when Rebecca Bernard, who performed beautifully with the Joni Mitchell show, said, Thomas Mayo had delivered um, that wonderful rendition of the Uluru Statement yep. from the Heart and she came on stage and said, what are you doing later? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't think many people of... heard it, but Brendan heard it. We were killing ourselves. <laughs> there was there was a there was a little bit of parting going on amongst the writers. I'll just leave it at that. I think but Rebecca I, I, was but, talking but, anyway. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> getting back to my most emotional moment um, was a, was actually incredibly unexpected because it was when I was introducing your session, which was the very first session of the festival, yours with Sarah Winman on Zoom. And Sarah is uh, is now, you know, in the last couple of years has become a really good friend of mine. And she popped up on the screen. There she was. And I was so overcome by seeing her because she's been, you know, feeding in a bit to what a good writers festival might look like and just being rather supportive. Wave at her appearance fee. Can't wait to come to Sorrento sometime in real life. Um and, and having you there, my dear friend, who's kind of lived and breathed every step of this festival in so many ways, and having you both there, getting on like two girlfriends at a pub who I've introduced for the first time, I could hardly talk. And then and looking out, there was a people actually had bought tickets. There was actually an audience, which was, I don't know, you never kind of really believe that anybody's going to come to something like that that you start. And I was so overcome. I completely teared up. So I was very emotional then. It was, it was a very interesting experience. What was your most interesting chance encounter at the Sorrento Writers' Festival? Well, early, I think, Friday or Saturday morning, I can't remember, I was um, getting a coffee with um, Queenie, my naughty Labrador, who was wreaking havoc in um, the local general store. And sitting having a coffee at the front of the cafe was Don Watson, who I, I don't know if I've ever actually met him before, but um, we said hello. And he, of course, was um, a big star of the festival. He's been a great supporter of yours. And um, he's a, a biographer, a writer, a speechwriter. Everyone knows about Don Watson. And I just said, oh, you've been a great support to Corrie and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're chatting away. And he said, you know, he was staying at the little cottage near the, as you probably know, the Lord Mayor's camp. And he said, I came to that Lord Mayor's camp um, in 1962. It was a kid from Gippsland. I still remember we beat Alexandra in the cricket. Percy Serity Percy organised running races and um, longer runs along the beach for us and um, even put on a Miss Portsy competition on the beach, which he does he doubted would have been allowed in this day and age. But um, I had no idea that he was a kid who actually went to that Lord Mayor's camp, a kid from the country. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, he did. And he had such fond memories of it. And uh, it really was his first encounter with water and water sports. So it was great to be able to, the Portsy camp very kindly allowed us to use that cottage. And they said, look, have a couple of writers stay there, whatever you want. And I just thought Don and Chloe, his partner, Chloe Hooper, 
and their two little boys. That would have been that was a perfect place for them to be. So. Um, yeah, that was great. I know. That's quite funny that he went back with that one. It was good. What's this week's Sorrento Riders Festival flavoured amazing fact? Well, Caro, I, I discovered this when I was I was uh, moderating a session on Saturday morning at the Forty Surf Lifesaving Club with Eliza Henry-Jones, Jill Hutchinson and Jock Sarong and also Michael Veach, who we know has written a lot about the history of Bass Strait, the Bass Strait Islands and Port Phillip Bay and Ticonderoga, the wonderful, um, that story of the, the plague ship, it was, as it was known in the mid-19th century. But um, uh, we, had, we, we, were, we were on our stalls and it was a beautiful morning on Saturday and out behind us was the raging uh, seas of Bass Strait. And Michael had written a book years ago on the islands of Bass Strait and I said, Michael, can you kick us off and just tell us what's out there? Tell us the history of what's out there behind our shoulders here. And Michael told a most extraordinary story, which I won't go into, but people should look it up, which is how um, Bass Strait and Port Phillip Bay were formed. And did you know, Caro, you probably know this, I did not know this, that hundreds of years ago, Bass Strait was actually, uh, was was joined to Australia. We all knew that bit. And there was a, a massive sort of the ice age and then the melting of ice and, uh, the, and Bass Strait was formed. And uh, any, any, sea captain of note absolutely despises Bass Strait because it is so hazardous and so many little islands, some of them just even rocks coming out of out of the water um, with no life on them. But it's just quite a treacherous um, spot. And so that was interesting. And then he got on to um, Port Phillip Bay. And of course, Port Phillip Bay was uh, was it was a big valley, and it was a, a, a it was a it was a hunting area for First Nations communities of thousands of years ago. And then when sea levels rose, um, the water rushed through that area that is now known as the Heads, and filled uh, what are now river plains, the wetlands, uh, what is now the the Yarra the Yarra River track, which goes right underneath um, Port Phillip Bay, and that whole estuary. And it was just so interesting to hear about the history of Port Phillip Bay and Bass Strait. So Michael's book, I think it's called something like The Forgotten Islands, um, The Islands of Bass Strait. And if you can pick it up anywhere, um, at a local bookshop, order it in or something, and you're interested in how how this southern part of Victoria was, was formed, it is a really fascinating historical story. That is interesting, Corrie, and we learnt, I learned a lot over... Um the weekend. Will there be a festival next year? Yes, 25th to the 28th of April. So everybody start booking your Airbnbs. Oh, that's very, very good heads up. It's been a great chat. I've really enjoyed catching up this week. Thank you, Miss Jane. Thank you for bringing in those beautiful mushrooms. The dahlias you brought to our live event last week were... Uh, I. They, they, they absolutely thrived for the whole weekend. They adorned my table, so thank you very much. I gather the boys, Corrie, the boys on the sounding board have given Miss Jane a hard time because they say that she loves us more than she loves them and they've given her a hard time for sleeping over at my house after, um, after our live event, which was ridiculous. Well, of course she likes us more. She gives us things like mushrooms and dahlias and we shower her with love because we're so grateful. Can you imagine Craig would... Hutchison um, taking a few pine mushrooms home for his uh, <laughs> steak tonight, Corey? Not thinking. Or, or something like we do, Janie, when you give flowers from the garden. Carol and I always say, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. It'll sit on the desk all, all week. I can't see the boys saying that. 
What do we say, Corrie? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. <laughs>